Scripture reading is from Leviticus 17. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they haul. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Verse 10, if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your sins. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among you, who takes in hunting, any beast or bird that may be eaten may pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore. I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, or the life of every creature is its blood. For whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the evening, when then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Z. I'm the lead pastor here at One Covenant Church. If I've not met you, I had a chance to speak to you. would love to do so after the service. Thank you so much, Sharon, for reading this passage for us. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that as we encounter your word afresh, that you would drive us to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of our souls, the King of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, if you just joined us, we've been working our way through the book of Leviticus. Let me just say two things about the book of Leviticus as we begin this message. Now, as we've read through the book of Leviticus and traveled through it and preached through it, you would come across a lot of strange and archaic and seemingly 
things that are not so relevant to us. So why in the world are we doing the book of Leviticus? Well, for two reasons. Number one, although Leviticus is written in a different time, a different culture, a different time in God's plan of redemption, it is still written to God's people. And so although the rituals and some of the cultural trappings may no longer be relevant to us, some of the underlying principles continue to be relevant to God's people. Secondly, uh, the book of Leviticus, as in all of Scripture, points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. But the book of Leviticus, because it is so full of ritual and sacrifices, it particularly points to Jesus Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. Now, some like to say that the gospel or the, the good news of Jesus Christ is like a beautiful diamond. As you let, look at it from different angles, you see new beauty and there's new joy uh, in that gaze. And similarly, with the book of Leviticus, as we gaze at Jesus through the lens of Leviticus, I pray that we'll see through the details that are here, something of the beauty of Jesus and the glory of the gospel that we would not be able to see if we did not understand all of the details of the book of Leviticus. Well, friends, the book of Leviticus is all about how a holy God makes sinful people holy so that they can dwell and commune with him. Leviticus 17, which is the text that we're covering today, is a transition point in the book of Leviticus. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll see that Leviticus 1 to 16 is primarily about the rituals and sacrifices that are necessary to atone and forgive the sins of God's people. God's people are unholy, but God is holy. In order for God's people to be able to enter into the presence of a holy God without being obliterated, these ritual sacrifices are necessary to atone for their sins and to win forgiveness for them. As we continue in the book of Leviticus, chapter 18 to 27, you will notice a shift. Instead of the rituals and sacrifices for atonement, 18 to 27 primarily focuses on how as God's people, we are to live holy and moral lives. So not atonement, but holiness. Leviticus 17 is that transition point that shows us the link between atonement and holy living. Some like to say that Leviticus 1 to 16 is all about ritual. Leviticus 18 to 27 is all about ethics. Leviticus 17 shows us that link between ritual and ethics. Yet others, more theologically minded, like to say that Leviticus 1 to 16 is about justification, borrowing a term from the New Testament, how we are declared righteous by God. And Leviticus 18 to 27 is about sanctification, how we live out our righteousness. And Leviticus 17, my friends, shows us that crucial link between the two. It answers the question, why should I live a moral and holy life since my sins have been already atoned for by sacrifice? It also answers the question, how? How can I live a moral and holy life? Where is the power? And the answer given to us in Leviticus 17 is that the power is in the blood. The powers in blood of the animal sacrifices. Now, as we've worked our way through Leviticus 1 to 16, we've seen the blood flowing freely. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And we're told in Leviticus 1 to 16 that this makes atonement. This brings forgiveness of sins. Well, Leviticus 17 will tell us just why the blood that is shed brings atonement and forgiveness of sins. In other words, friends, what you have here in Leviticus 17 is not just the power for forgiveness, but the power for holy living. 
Leviticus 17 tells us that the two are intertwined. Why, friends? Well, because of three things. The blood reveals to us the lordship of God, the sacredness of life, and the life of love. The blood reveals to us the lordship of God, the sacredness of life, and the life of love. Lordship, life, and love. Let's look at those things in turn. Well, in verse 1 and 2, come with me to verse 1 and 2. Would you glance at your Bible at verse 1 and 2? We see that this is God speaking to Moses. Now, God gives Moses commands that he is to tell Aaron and his sons and the people of Israel about how they should handle the blood of animals. So this command comes from God himself to his representative Moses, who is to tell Aaron, his sons, and all the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord, and this is God's regulation for how they should handle animal blood. In verses 1 to 9, God gives his commands for how they should handle the shedding of blood, the killing of the animals. Come with me to verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4 says this, If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. Now, friends, over the last few weeks, we've discovered that the ox, the lamb, and the goat, these are the animals that are used for sacrifice. These are the sacrificial animals. These are part of the domestic flock of the people of Israel that they, were used, that they would use in worship of God. And God is telling them that none of these animals should be killed outside the camp. And these animals, if they are killed inside the camp, every single one of them must be brought to the Lord as an offering. Now you'll remember that in most of the sacrifices, a portion goes to the Lord and a portion comes back to the people. So every single animal needs to be sacrificed within the camp and brought to the tabernacle as an offering of worship to God. And if they disobey this command and they kill the animal outside the camp, or they kill the animal within the camp, but they do not bring that animal to the tabernacle for worship, verse 4 says they will be found guilty before God, guilty of shedding blood, and they will be cut off from his people. This is a very serious command. And yet at the same time, it is a very practical and common sense command. Now why in the world does God do this? Don't they own their flocks. Don't they have a right to their flocks? Well, yes, they do. Well, verses 5 to 7 tells us why, even though they have a right to their flocks, God gives them this practical, commonplace command of not killing your animals outside the camp and of bringing every single animal killed within the camp to the tabernacle of worship. Come with me to verse 5. Verse 5 says this, this is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifice, that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priests at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Why? so that they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. You see, friends, just as in the time of Exodus, where God's people were prone to worship the golden calf, 
So here in the wilderness, they were prone to worship goat demons. They were prone to worship something other than God. They were prone to sacrifice their animals outside the camp and worship in the open field, verse 5 and verse 7, the goat demons. In other words, friends, this command, this practical common sense command of only killing the animals inside the camp and of bringing every single animal to the Lord is there to remind them they need to obey the first of the Ten Commandments for their good. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and 3, God prefaces the Ten Commandments by saying, I, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one who saved you. You shall have no other gods before me. They are to worship God alone. That's the whole point of this command. Now, verses 8 to 9, very interesting, says that the same rule applies to the strangers who sojourn among them. Now, verse 12, where we will look at the consumption of blood, the regulation for consumption of blood, is the same thing. The same rule applies to the strangers who sojourn among them, which means that this doesn't just apply to the people of ethnic Israel. This applies to everybody that comes and becomes a part of the nation of Israel. And throughout the Old Testament, you will see hints of this over and over again. And this simply tells us, friends, that God's plan to save a people for himself has always involved every nation. Yes, indeed, he chose ethnic Israel to be a light to the nations. But the nations were supposed to come and be part of Israel. God's plan has always been for all nations. So friends, this command of how to kill the animal is a practical common sense command, but it was there to help people see that God alone is worthy of worship and they must worship him alone and no other. He's the author of life and therefore he has the right to regulate life and that life belongs to him. My friends, all of these regulations are for are good. Now, friends, last time I checked, I don't think anyone in our church is kind of prone to worshiping goat demons. If you are, please talk to Joel after the service. We'd love to pray for you. But the truth is this. We might not give our hearts to goat demons, but there are things other than God that we do give our hearts to. You see, friends, worship is simply ascribing worth to something. So we might not ascribe worth to a goat demon, but we do ascribe worth to a lot of other things other than God. You see, worship is turning to anything at all and saying to that thing, if I get you, I will have significance and I will have security and because I believe that, I'm willing to sacrifice to you in order to get that. Worship is anything that you turn to and say, you are my significance, you are my security. If I get you, I will have that and therefore I'm willing to sacrifice my very life to get that. Friends, this morning as I was reading this passage, I was convicted. You see, this week, um, for whatever reason, I've been a bit discouraged, a bit despondent, even a bit anxious about the way ministry, my ministry is going, and it's been difficult. So this morning as I was preparing to preach, I was reading this passage again, I looked at verse 7, and I realized, oh my goodness. 
I've been worshiping the ministry demon. I've been saying to ministry, you are my significance. You are my security. If I have you, I, if I get it done well, I'll be safe. I'll be secure. And so I'm willing to sacrifice to you. I'm willing to give up my sleep. I'm willing to give up my rest. I'm willing to give up my comfort for you. And I realized, oh my goodness, how far my heart has wandered away. Well, friends, you might not be worshiping the ministry demon, but there are other demons that you turn your heart to. You might turn your heart to your career. You might turn your heart to a particular romantic relationship. If I simply have that person or have that person in that way, I will be safe. I will be secure. I'm willing to sacrifice for that. It might be your bank account, your finances. And yes, it might even be ministry. It's anything other than God that you turn to and say, you are my safety, you are my significance, I will sacrifice to you because I will get what I want. And the thing is this, none of these things are bad, so please don't quit ministry. I hope you say that to me, and I'll say that to you. Don't quit your jobs, don't quit your families, okay? Most essentially, don't quit your families, but see them in the right place. All of these things are good gifts from God, but they are fleeting things. And so, friends, they cannot bear the weight of your eternal significance and your eternal security. They will fail you at some point in time. At some point in time, I will have to preach my last sermon. Some of you are saying sooner but better than later. Huh? At some point in time, these things that we turn to for security and significance will be taken from us, and then we will have nothing. You see, friends, the only thing that can truly bear the weight of our eternal significance and eternal security is God himself. The God who made you in his image and in his likeness, so because you are you, you are significant to him. And the God who gives his son, Jesus Christ, so that if you embrace him, you don't just have security, you have eternal security. And so, friends, this practical, common-sense command is here to remind the Israelites, God alone is worthy of worship. God alone can bear the weight of your eternal significance and your eternal security and no other. And friends, we need some of these practical, common-sense commands as well. And one of the practical common sense commands that God gives to us is to set aside a day a week to worship Him and to be with God's people. Why, friends? Because we need to hear from Him and we need to hear from one another. We need to hear that, hey, you know, even though this work thing I'm doing or this ministry I'm doing isn't going well, I really suck. We need to hear people saying to us, you know what? You're loved. Your love with an eternal, unchangeable love. Your love with the love of Jesus Christ. God loves you, and we love you, and that's what we need. So it's a practical, common-sense thing that impinges, yes, on our schedules. It makes us uncomfortable sometimes. But God knows that we need this. Otherwise, we forget, and our hearts will wander away to other things and ultimately do not satisfy and cannot bear the weight of what we need. So that is the first point. The blood, the regulation of the shedding of blood shows us who God truly is, shows us who the true Lord of our lives is meant to be. And it's a good and beautiful thing 
that we know that and we turn our hearts towards that. But the second thing we find is in verses 10 to 16, God moves on to give us commandments for the consumption of blood. Not just the shedding of blood, verses 1 to 9, but also the consumption of blood. And this shows us the sacredness of life itself. Come with me to verse 10. God says, If any one of the house of Israel or all the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, once again, you see, it's meant for the house of Israel and all the strangers who sojourn among them. It's meant for all nations. If any of them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. The same severity. If you shed blood outside of the camp or you do not bring the shed blood to the tabernacle, you're cut off. If you eat the blood, you will also be cut off. In other words, they are not to eat the blood of the sacrificial animals. Now in verse 13, we're told that they're not even to eat the blood of animals that they have hunted. Look at verse 13. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, a clean animal, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. So before you can eat the meat of your game, you're meant to pour out the blood and cover it with soil. Now why cover it with soil? Most likely to prevent further desecration of that blood. It shows you how sacred that blood is. Now friends, it gets even more pedantic. Look at verses 15 and 16. It even says that they, if they eat an animal that has died by itself for natural reasons or is torn by beasts, they should assume that they become unclean and must go through a cleansing ritual. Why, friends? Well, you see, animals like that most likely would have been left out for a while, and some of the blood would have coagulated on the meat or even in the meat, and it would be hard to remove. So most likely, if you eat an animal like that, you would consume some blood. And therefore, they are to assume that they are unclean and have to go through a cleansing ritual. Now, friends, once again, we ask the question, why in the world does God command us not to eat the blood? Is it because of some kind of zoonotic disease within the blood? Well, friends, that might be true, but that's not the focus of the text. Look at verse 11. Verse 11 tells us, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. Now, look at verse 14. It says again, For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. So they're not to eat the blood because the life of the creature is in the blood of the creature. You take the blood out of the creature, you take the blood out of any of us, and we die. The creature dies. The blood is synonymous with life. I read an article on CNA this week and that talked about the stock of blood in Singapore's blood bank. It's encouraging people to donate blood. And the article said this, every year, 30,000 patients rely on a safe and steady stream of blood supply to sustain or to improve the quality of life. This blood is used for treatment of bleeding or surgeries or for blood disorders and other medical conditions. Blood is synonymous with life. The 
life of the creature is in the blood. And that is why they're not supposed to take the blood. Every meal, they are reminded that life is sacred. And life is given by God. And God is the one who can ultimately take life. And so by not eating blood, they are reminded of this reality. God is involved even in your eating and drinking. And he is the author of life. The life is in the blood. The life is sacred, and only God can take it. But there's another reason, friends. Look at verse 11. God goes on to say, I have given it, the blood, for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement. So the other reason why they cannot eat the blood is because, not just because the life is sacred, but because the blood brings atonement. The life of the creature given up in sacrifice brings atonement and forgiveness. You see, friends, our sins against God are so grave that it really does deserve death. And it is only through the death of this creature whose blood has been shed that anybody, this sacred life given up, can be atoned for and forgiven. This same blood is sprinkled on the altar, given to God. The animal dies as a substitute for sinners who come to worship God. And by refraining from eating the blood, they are reminded over and over again how precious life is, but also that a life needs to be given in order for their sins to be forgiven so that they can be right before Almighty God. Life has to begin for their life, and blood has to be shed for their blood. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What kind of a horrible, barbaric, monstrous God requires blood sacrifice for sins? No, 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 Z. My God is simply a God of love. He loves everything and everyone, and he does not require blood sacrifice. What kind of a God are you describing here, Z, in Leviticus 17? And I will say to you, friends, I am describing a God of true love. Why, friends? You see, friends, if you love someone, you simply cannot ignore the bad things that are done to them. Right? Think about parents. You know, if you have children, like, yeah, attack me for all you want, but you come near my children, that's when you see jujitsu. You're upset when your, your children are being attacked. When you love someone, you cannot stand back and say, I'll just ignore the bad things that are done to them. But friends, here's the thing. If we truly love someone, we cannot ignore the bad things they do to themselves and the bad things they do to others as well. Let's just use an example. If a young person abuses some kind of substance and is destroying their life, who are the ones who are filled with the most compassion? It's the parents. 
But who are the ones who are also filled with the most fury? It's the parents. Because if you truly love someone, you cannot stand back and say, destroy your life, Lord, never mind, I have more children. If you truly love someone, you will have great compassion for that person, but also great fury. Friends, love and fury are not opposite of each other. Love and indifference, they are opposite of each other. If you truly love someone, you will not let them destroy their own lives. And God is that kind of God. He is a God who loves his people and loves his children so much. He's filled with compassion for them, but also filled with fury against their sins. He simply cannot ignore their wrongs because if he did, he would not be a God of love. He would be a frivolous, strange deity in the sky who does not really care and does not really love. God is the Lord, God of both compassion and fury at the same time because he is truly a God of love. And see what he does with his love. He doesn't just get upset. He makes a way for that sin to be atoned for through the shedding of blood. Sacred life is given so that your life can be redeemed. So in the sacrifices, God is showing us, yes, sin really is that serious. A life must be given for it. And at the same time, he's also showing us that grace really is that great because a life was given for you. Well, friends, there's even more. You see, because this God doesn't just give us an animal to take over our sins. He gives us himself. Come with me, friends, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. This is the New Testament looking back at the Old Testament and telling us the purpose for all that's happened here. Look at verse 3. In these sacrifices, looking at the Levitical sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. I want you to let that sink in, friends. Over the last 16 chapters, the number of animals and the amount of blood that has been shed, how intricate every single sacrifice is, you know what it is? It's a reminder. It's a reminder of sins and the seriousness of our sins. But then it goes on to say, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And then in Hebrews 10.19, it says this, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. You see, friends, all of these Levitical sacrifices of ox, of goats, of lambs, they only work because they point us forward to the true and better sacrifice of the body of Christ broken on the cross for our sins and the blood that flowed freely. It's not just an animal's life, friends, that God gave for your life. 
This is love that he gave his own life for you. He shed his own blood for you. He broke his own body for you. And friends, that's a God of true love. One who cannot simply ignore your sin because he truly does love you. But one who has given himself for your sins in that same love. He's made a way, friends, for all of us to be cleansed, to be forgiven, and to be changed. That is what a true love looks like. And friends, this love gives us a life of love. Because don't you see, friends, this is how Leviticus 17 connects Leviticus 1 to 6 and 18 to 27. This is how Leviticus 17 connects forgiveness with holiness, atonement and life, ritual and life. In the blood of Jesus, you see that God alone is God. In the blood of Jesus, you also see that your life is precious. But he has loved you to the very end, to the point of shedding his own blood, that you may be forgiven freely and fully. When you embrace him by faith, you have full and final forgiveness. And that doesn't just give you forgiveness, friends. If you've experienced that, it creates in you a life of love, a love for God, and a simple but furious desire to be faithful to him no matter what. That is the power of forgiveness. And that is the power for holiness. But here's the thing, friends. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts are so prone to wander. So that even in a gathering of God's people, hearing his word, we often don't feel the power of God's love for both forgiveness and for holiness. And so just as God gave Israel a practical, common-sense command, don't consume the blood to remember his love. With the coming of Jesus, he gives us another practical, common-sense command. Consume the blood to remember my love for you. Old Testament scholar Gordon Menon puts it this way. According to Leviticus, the blood is the life and therefore must not be drunk. Those who ignore this rule will be cut off. According to our Lord and Savior, it is his blood that gives eternal life. And those who wish to enjoy it must drink his blood. John 6.54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Renham goes on to say, each time the Lord's Supper is administered, the worshiper is reminded through Christ's words, this is my blood. And it is only through the Savior's death upon the cross that he can enjoy eternal life. Friends, to drink the blood of Jesus is to believe for yourself, and no one else can do it for you, friends, to believe for yourself that Jesus did indeed shed his blood for your sins. And friends, we get to see a visible and tangible picture of this in the Lord's Supper. 
Friends, in the Lord's Supper, we come to the elements by faith. And as we eat and drink by faith, this practical, common sense command has the power to drive the love of God deep into our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the power to forgive all of our sins and the power for us to live holy lives. Forgive us, Lord, if you have given our hearts to other things this week, even this moment, other things that we think we can turn to for safety and security and significance. And help us today to see, Lord, that you are the only one that can bear the weight of eternal security, significance, and security and safety. And help us come now with humble but willing hearts to embrace again every gift that you have given to us. As we come to the Lord's table, Lord, help us, Lord, to see, yes, the greatness of our sins, a life has been given, but also the glory of your grace, a life has been given for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.